Good morning, church. We're going to start off with a reading. Today's reading is uh, from Matthew, chapter 2, The Visit of the Wise Men. Let me read it to you, and then we'll, and then we'll talk. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. All assembling, all the chief priests, scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For... From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained for them what what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring, bring me word so that I may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay. So today, we enter into the third week of Advent, and our weekly focus this week is on joy. For those of you that maybe know me, um, you may know my personality a little bit. I tend to, tend to uh, border on the melancholy and pessimistic side of things, so you're probably asking yourself, what am I going to teach you on joy today? Um, And that's a good question. I actually thought that two months ago when the Advent preaching calendar came out and the only topic left was joy. I immediately thought that Pastor Tori was being a little passive aggressive because last year I gave him a hard time that we didn't preach on these traditional topics. Um, But Pastor Tori doesn't have a passive aggressive bone in his body. So I knew that God is is here uh, to stretch me, to grow me. Um, And so when I preach this to you, know that I have preached it to myself and continue to do so today. So if we're going to talk about joy, we need to talk about happiness and joy and what the differences are. Joy is often intertwined in our culture to really mean happiness. If you look in the Bible, you'll see the definition um, that joy is great pleasure or happiness. And if you're happy, you must have joy. And if you're joyful, you must be happy. Um, But joy and happiness, they're distinctly different. Happiness is similar to pleasure. In fact, I think pleasure and happiness, they really can be interchanged. See, happiness is, it's deep laughter with good friends. Happiness is a morning hug from your little one. Happiness, for some of us, is Eli Manning beating Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, not once, but twice. (laughs) And this week, I learned that happiness is also Big Rob's homemade banana pudding that he dropped off at the staff office. That was amazing. That was happiness for me when I I took that. 
But happiness is fragile, right? Uh, it's there one second, it's gone the next. The friends that you laugh with and enjoy, they move away. That child that just gave you the cute hug uh, proceeds to refuse to eat breakfast and spills their cereal and there's tears. That happiness is gone. Your team beats Tom Brady in the Super Bowl and then doesn't make the playoffs for 10 more years and Tom Brady wins five more Super Bowls. <laughs> so happiness gone. Are you happy there, Brian? Yeah. All right. Happiness is fleeting, right? But joy, joy is different. It's, it feels elusive, it's deeper, it feels richer. It's not superficial. And true joy, and let me just say, when I say true joy today, I'm talking about biblical joy. It's not fragile. See, worldly joy, if, if there is such a thing as worldly joy, it differs from biblical joy. Pastor Matt Chandler says this, he says, biblical joy can be smashed against the worst of the world and it won't break. See, joy isn't all happiness. Biblical joy, true joy, flourishes even in the midst of sorrow. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says this, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul describes himself as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. And Romans 5 says we rejoice in our sufferings. See, biblical joy is clearly different than what the world describes as joy. So today we're not going to talk too much about happiness or pleasure or worldly joy, but we're going to focus on biblical joy, unsmashable, unbreakable biblical joy. So let's jump into our main idea. Our main idea is this. True joy is found only in Jesus, and it's sustained by the Holy Spirit. And our roadmap is going to look a little bit like this. We're going to talk about joy in the world. We're going to talk about joy in Jesus. And then we're going to spend some time talking about sustaining joy. So let's talk about joy in the world. At the end of creation, Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. It doesn't take a lot of observation for us to notice that there is beauty in this world. Even as Christians, in knowing that the world is fallen and it's broken, we can look around, and even the pessimist, most pessimistic among us can concede to its beauty in the creation. Whether it's the creation or the created, God has made all things beautiful, and he's blessed the earth with goodness and beauty. His common grace in this is available for even those who don't acknowledge him. It's evident. His beauty is evident. There's so much in beauty and it brings pleasure. And you can see this whether you seek your creator or not. The problem is that when we continue to seek the beauty and the goodness and the pleasure that God has given us on earth, it usually leads to a poor balance. And when we seek that outside of our creator, we begin to lack meaning and purpose. This life offers a lot of fun a lot of pleasure along the way. But it also offers an equal amount, and depending on the person and circumstances, suffering and pain and loss. And we need to make sense of all that. And how we make sense of that draws us either closer to God or further away. So my favorite book of the Bible as a very pessimistic and very melancholy teenager was, can anybody guess, what was it? Ecclesiastes, right. Uh, that was, that was a, a book of the Bible that I held fast in my teenage years. Um, I appreciated King Solomon's view on life. You see, if you haven't read it, Solomon, uh, he was the wisest, richest ruler of his time. He ruled over Israel in great peace, in great prosperity. 
Uh, and he also pursued those things that even today the world would tell us that's what life's about. That's what we pursue. Money, sex, power. Solomon had it all. And he pursued it on a scale that we can't even imagine. No one in this room will ever outdo what King Solomon did. He threw parties that lasted days and weeks and years. First Kings 4 talks about Solomon's daily provision. It fed 15 to 20,000 people daily. You want to talk about sexual freedom, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And if you want to talk about wealth, the Bible says that Solomon planted forests. He planted forests. He built houses for all of his wives. I can't imagine furnishing houses with all of the throw pillows you would need for 700 wives <laughs> over the course of... That, that, that blows my mind, right? He enjoyed life to the fullest, he worked hard, he partied hard, and he pursued pleasure on a grand scale. In Ecclesiastes 1, 13 and 14, this is what he says. I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom by all that is done under the heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Solomon took all of God's blessing, combined it with all the desires of man's heart, and concludes that it's still vanity. It's striving. He describes it as catching the wind. His conclusion is simple at the end of Ecclesiastes, and he points back to God. He says this in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. No matter how much we strive, no matter what we seek, if it doesn't include God, it doesn't include a seeking after God, it's vanity. And it never leads to true joy. But there is true joy, and so we're going to talk about that true joy, because that true joy is found in Jesus. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, he, meaning God, put eternity in the hearts of men. And I kind of suppose that that search for eternity was on the hearts of the wise men as they traveled 900 miles, leaving the comfort of their home, their wealth, to seek a child. And when they entered the child's house, they rejoiced and they bowed down and they acknowledged their Savior. And that acknowledgement of their Savior brings us joy. C.S. Lewis was a staunch atheist for the first 30 years of his life. In his, mere, in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes this. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Well, it's no surprise to us that the thing that has them is Jesus. It's only Jesus. No pleasure and happiness can eventually surpass the joy and happiness to have a Savior. The Apostle Paul writes this in John 1, 9-13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we receive Christ, right, we have received the forgiveness of our sins. All the folly, all the striving, that, that journeying that we do for happiness, it's, it's replaced with joy in Christ. We receive the right to be called the children of God. We receive eternal life, and we receive true joy. Think back to a moment for those of you that have put your trust in Jesus. Do you remember that moment where you accepted him as your Savior? Maybe it's a specific moment where it was just an immediate conversion, an immediate change in who you were. Maybe it was a slow uh, conversion, but you realized that you needed Jesus at some point. C.S. Lewis would describe himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. And after that, he writes his autobiography titled Surprised by Joy. That moment, that change, when the burdens of life are taken off of us, when we receive the salvation of God, that produces joy. And the psalmist writes, um, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sometimes as believers, we forget that converting moment, that moment where we gave it all to Jesus because life goes on after that. But I would encourage you today to think back on those moments and be encouraged by that. That's why in tribes we often share our journey, our story. That's important. That encourages others. When we hear the testimony of those that came to faith in Christ, that encourages us and that brings joy in our hearts. If you are here today and you haven't received that gift, and you're striving after the wind for life, for pleasure, for happiness, for purpose, I'd invite you to pray with us after the service to seek that true joy. Uh, I'm going to be biased and direct. True joy only comes from Jesus. That's why we're here every Sunday. Um, and if you want to know more about that, we would love to talk with you. So we know that it's good to receive joy, and it's good to remind ourselves of the joy of our salvation. But the question is, what's the practicality of that? How do we sustain joy in this world? How do we hold on to unbreakable, unsmashable joy in the day in and day out of our life? And for some of us that with the melancholy personality that aren't always optimistic, holding on to joy can be a challenge. It can sometimes seem impossible. It can sometimes seem overwhelming. And we may even forget that it's there. I get that. But here's the good news, is that we don't do that on our own. It's not Jesus, joy, and then figure out how to sustain that joy the rest of your life. Read self-help books, pursue happiness now that you're free. It's not that. We actually receive help in carrying joy through our life. So we're going to talk about sustaining joy. We're going to talk about three things. Being led by the Spirit, being obedient to the Word, in abiding in Jesus. So here's my confession, my pulpit confession to you today. This passage we're about to read really convicted me and reminded me of where joy really comes from and how it is produced. So Galatians 5.16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. So, reminder that fruit of the joy, uh, joy, sorry, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. I would have been much happier if Paul kind of put that into the gifts of the Spirit. You know the gifts, right? Like some get the gifts, like glyphs of teaching, administration. Some don't have the gifts. That would have been great if he moved that because then I could just be, well, I, I have the gift of administration, but I don't have the gift of joy. Sorry, honey. You have it, so that's great. Um, but no, no, he, he reminded me, and I'm reminded, uh, that the fruit of the, of the Spirit is joy. It's, it's for all who are in Christ Jesus. But if it's a fruit, we need to be able to cultivate that fruit. We need to be able to grow in that fruit. It means that we need to be obedient to the word. So the second thing about sustaining joy is that we need to be reminded that joy is a command. Matthew 5.12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. 1 Peter 4.13 says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. And Philippians 4.4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So it says always, and then it says again. It would seem to me that always is, is enough of a statement. Always rejoice in the Lord. But Paul reminds us, he even says it again because he knows that joy is hard and it's fleeting. He says, again, rejoice. So we have a reminder that joy is led by the Spirit, but it's also commanded. That's attention, right? Jesus says, do this, but then he also tells us that it's, it's a fruit. It's, it's part of your salvation. It's part, it comes with the Holy Spirit, who's our helper. That tension is there because we have a good father he tells us to do something, but he gives us the abilities and the gifts to be able to do that. Right? If I'm a good parent, I don't tell my kids that they need to get better at basketball, so go out in the yard and play basketball, but I'm not going to give you a basketball. Right? I give them that basketball and encourage them to be better at basketball. I've given them the gifts. It's up to them, but they have the tools. And I think that's what we have to learn as believers, or we have to be reminded of, is that the tension of the gift that our Father gives us through the Spirit and the command that he tells us to do. Third, and really the most important piece, is that to sustain joy, we need to abide in Jesus. John 15, 3 through 11 says this, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So it's a long passage I just read. How many times did he say the word abide? I didn't count, I just thought of that. But that's a lot, right? As I, as I read it out loud. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. And notice he says that my joy will be in you, so that your joy will be full. Not abide in me and produce your own joy. The joy that is in us is the joy of the Lord. He gives us that joy when we stay close to him, when we abide in him, when we're nourished from the root and we are the branches. When we stay close to Jesus, he gives us his joy. So I could end this and say, well, you just need to abide, right? Just, just abide. It's, just stay close to Jesus. But what's the practicality of how we abide in Christ? What does it look like to abide in him? I think there's three things. It's the word, it's worship, and it's community. So by the word, I mean we read the word, we go to the word, we hear the word, and we memorize the word. When we have those things in us and we're diligent to do them, our joy is filled. And when we don't, when our tank's on empty, and we don't have the time to read the word, and we don't attend church to hear the word, and we stop memorizing scripture after quest 5-6. We don't have that word in us. Our source of joy becomes depleted. And again, hear that as me preaching to myself as much as to you. We also abide practically by worshiping. And that includes singing and journaling and fasting and meditation and silence and solitude. We were created to worship him. In those moments, have you had those moments in your life where you've entered in deep, true worship? Maybe it's on the men's retreat or the women's retreat, or maybe it's a here, here on Sunday, where it was just you and God. I would guess that you were felt and were filled with joy in those moments of true, deep worship. That's a way that we abide in him. And then we abide through community. The Sunday gathered, not once a month, not four times a year at Christmas, but the Sunday gathered, us here together, being part of tribes. We're abiding in Christ when we're part of tribes and part of a community. And when we serve, we abide in him. And then when we evangelize, when we share the gospel, I couldn't help but be filled with joy listening to Michelle Rosamelia talk about the Bible that she gave out to that man and his response, that step of faith that filled me with joy, that encourages the congregation. And when we hear that another sheep is back in the fold, we rejoice as a congregation. That brings us joy. For joy to flourish, we need to abide, we need to obey, and we need to step out and do what the Lord asks us to do and be reminded and encouraged that the Holy Spirit is with us and has given us that gift, and it's not on our own. So, Practical things, ways to abide, ways to grow in joy. But it would be foolish to say that there aren't barriers or things that prevent us from having joy. What prevents us from having unbreakable, unsmashable joy day in and day out? I think there's three things that we'll talk about. 
It's the flesh, it's the world, and it's the devil. So let's talk about flesh. By flesh, I mean our fleshly desires, the sin that separates us from God. Sin separates us. When you're in sin that's unrepentant, how can you be filled with joy? I don't think you can. If you're a true believer and you have Jesus in you, you can't be filled with joy if you're continually outside of his will and sinning. It blocks your joy. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And he didn't mean that you'll lose your salvation if you sin. What he meant was that it pulls you away from God. You need to kill the sin. You need to confess on a regular basis to brother or sister, to your Savior, before communion. If you have a joy problem, I think one of the questions we could ask is, do you have a sin problem? Because sin will separate us from, from God. That's a barrier to joy. The second one is the world. And by the world, I don't mean, I don't mean the, the sinful aspects of the world. Because remember, there's beauty in the world. And we're redeemed. And God has given us dominion over the world. And when we see the world through a biblical view, when we see the world through what God has given us, there are things to pursue that aren't sinful, that are just, that bring fun and pleasure while we're still here. But we need to have a balance between that because sometimes that pleasure, seeking, knowing that we're free, that we're saved, we can go on and pursue our own pursuits, our own desires, build the nicest houses, go on the best vacations, ski every weekend, fill in the blank on whatever your worldly desire, your desires are, right? That can, we can glorify God in some of that, but it can also draw us away. And then we find that we're searching for that worldly joy and not the joy that's found in Jesus. So that's another barrier I think we have for joy. And the last barrier is the devil. I feel like, I mean, I only preach a couple times a year, but I feel like I always talk about the devil. So I hope you guys aren't going to like stereotype me. But we, we have to, right? We have an enemy, and he's real. Um, and if you want to have uh, a different view of the birth of Christ, I encourage you um, this week to read Revelation 12. Um, I'll call it the PG-13 version of the cosmic battle that occurred in the birth of Christ and the redemption of the world. It's beautiful and a bit violent. But we're going to read just a small passage from it, verses 7 through 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power in the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, conquered him, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even until death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. There is both joy and sorrow in that passage. 
Joy that the devil has been conquered, but sorrow that we're still here on earth and we're in the midst of that battle. But the joy comes in knowing that the kingdom of darkness that is pressing in against God's people has already been defeated. And it says that he knows his time is short. Sometimes we lose perspective as believers. We, we, we have that freedom, that forgiveness from our sins. It, the burdens are off, but then we live our life. And we sometimes forget that we're living for eternity, that we have heaven in our grasp when we have given our life to Christ. And that no matter what happens here, that unbreakable, unsmashable joy is because of what God has secured for us. And he has done that. The cosmic war is over. Jesus has won that. And this is the remnants of what's to come. But each day, we're a day closer to the return of our king, to the return of Jesus. So there's a beautiful quote by um, Dr. Michael Byrd in his book, uh, The evangelical theology and I want to read it to you and I wanted to just just sit in it and just just think about what this means for us and for our world the festering cancer of sin has at last heard news of its cure in the apex of death life rises with healing in its wing Satan's forces spent in the worst was no match for the best of the son of God the fatal wound of Jesus deals a fatal blow to death The powers of this present darkness shiver as the looming tsunami of the kingdom of God draws ever near. The despots of the world live in denial as much as they live on borrowed time. Can we rejoice in that, church? The beauty that God has redeemed us, that there's nothing the devil can take. He can bring you sorrow. He can press in against you. But you have the joy of the Lord. Jesus has dealt that fatal blow to death. We live with him in eternity. That is one of the joys of our salvation, if not the joy. Be encouraged by that. So the song, The Joy, joy to the World, which we sang when we opened, it wasn't written as a Christmas song, right? Um, it was written um, from Psalm 98, which was actually... Um, a, a, a worship of God returning to earth, returning for his people. So when we sing Joy to the World, we sing it at Christmas, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but sometimes I think, um, you know, we may have a hard time connecting with six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus and how he redeems us from the world. I always want to say that in a sermon. Um, <laughs> it, it, it may be hard to relate to this baby in a manger and what he's done. So I'm going to close. It's not up here, um, but I want to read you a passage from Revelation. Because six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus grows up. He lives a perfect life. He carries the burdens of sin that we have. He's crucified and dies on the cross. He's buried. He rises three days later for the redemption of the world. And then he comes back. He will come back. And so this passage from Revelation, this is, this is not six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus. This is Jesus in his full glory. Revelation 19, verses 11 through, can't read it, 14. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has his name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and earth will sing. Would you sing with me, Lord, as we sing with me, church, as we worship him. Let me pray and the band will come up. Lord, you are good. Lord, you're the source of our joy. Lord, you have not left us here alone. You've given us your Holy Spirit, Lord, which reminds us, Lord, that those fruits, joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control are ours, Lord, because you guide us and you help us, Lord. Lord, would you instill joy in your servant, in your people here today, Lord? Would we be a people who would rejoice, Lord, knowing that we are free, knowing that you've won the battle, knowing that you are going to return and you are going to bring peace and restoration of all things broken. Lord, we thank you that you have restored us, Lord. May we be a people who rejoice, who share that joy with others that don't know you, who've lost hope, who can't see the big picture. Lord, your spirit can show them, and may we be the people that help guide them in that, Lord. That we could then rejoice that another sheep is back in the fold, Lord. That we can have daily and weekly celebrations, Lord, of the goodness that you give to us, Lord. Would you grow your church? Would you grow your flock? Would you grow our joy, Lord? In your name we pray.